Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. So, Thomas, you and I are going to do a solo episode tonight. We had a guest cancel. Uh, it's a prominent Bitcoiner, so hopefully we're going to talk about the Balaji's bet and the collapse of SVB and all that good stuff uh, <laughs> when we get him rescheduled. But for now, we just thought we'd uh, we'd, we'd hit record and just see what comes out of it. We have no idea what's uh, what this conversation is going to be about. All right, what do you think the odds are in Balaji's bet? Not very good, honestly. I, I think that uh, Balaji's is definitely one of these 4D chess sorts of people. That that's a meme that's thrown a, around a lot. Anytime somebody on your in your political tribe does anything at all, but I think in his case, he actually is a 4D chess player. And I, I think the the sort of meta bet that he's made with himself is that this drives a lot of attention towards a project he's very passionate about, which is Bitcoin, and he gets to be the the main character of the internet for 90 days. So even if he ends up having to pony up a million dollars. I don't know that it matters all that much to him. I know he has the money and it would be really, really, really hard for him to buy this kind of publicity and this kind of interest and mind share uh, for a lesser amount. So, you know, I wish him the best either way. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are talking about it. He's gotten a lot of attention that um, that alone is worth worth quite a quite a bit. Um, so. Yeah, realistically, in 90 days, what do you think Bitcoin will be up to? I mean, it's probably going to be about five grand up or down from where it's at now. Uh, I, I don't have charts in front of me, but, you know, unless there's some sort of exogenous shock or some sort of major event, I mean, it tends not to uh, to swing all that much it, from what I understand. It, it tend, tends to swing a lot based on uh, these frivolous lawsuits that the U.S. is filing against crypto companies. Um, that I guess that's what I, the way I think about it is that this is fairly frivolous. If they really wanted to regulate the industry, what they would do is provide a, um, kind of a regulatory playground that they could work together and work out all these differences. Um, you know, one of, one of the topics I got into a discussion on last night was on the, the idea of standards and there's not really a lot of standards in the in the crypto world and that i think is um need, needing to change i mean if you're if you're going to um create an environment where you can transfer your assets from one platform to another um yeah the, then you need standards in order to do that um and I, th I think we're a long ways from creating those standards. So uh, I think there's a huge opportunity there for somebody who wants to dive into that topic. Yeah, I, I wish them the best of luck. That's a very thorny issue. Why don't you back up a little bit and, and just give some context on the on the lawsuit that you're talking about? What are you referencing? <clears throat> um, the lawsuit against Binance that came out today, um, which... Uh, it wasn't by the SEC this time. It was by another uh, regulatory agency, and uh, it's it's kind of this gotcha mentality that um, you, they're they're just trying to exert some level of authority, and so they 
they make headlines all over the world by filing these these lawsuits. And I, I don't see them anything other than frivol frivolous lawsuits because um, they all get negotiated out. It's not like this is going to be some big trial like uh, the Johnny Depp trial or anything like that. <laughs> What's the substance of it? Is Binance, does Binance stand accused of having committed any particular crime? Uh, I, I haven't uh, followed all of the details on it, but um, it's like they they wanted them to comply with some sort of regulatory measures and um, they were slow in filing all the paperwork or, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and I don't know, if you keep in mind that all of this came out of the 2008 Great Recession, I mean, the banking industry just really imploded back then. Um, the savings and loan industry was destroyed, um, and that put the entire world into a tailspin for several years. And out of that came uh, Satoshi Nakamoto creating Bitcoin, and Bitcoin was a direct response to that um, because, because people had started losing faith in, in uh, the monetary supply in the money system. And, and for good reason. And the people who picked up on this, there's this early group of libertarian quants. These are the polymaths. These are the people that are intensely bright, that understand this inside and out. And they're the ones that uh, uh, weighed in heavily and, and started uh, pooling their assets to make this industry a go. Uh, so the, the whole the whole crypto world came out as a result of of the um, of the kind of the polymaths of libertarianism that uh, uh, a group that normally doesn't hang out together, but <laughs> they do for this. <laughs> we'll, we'll get together for this one thing. So I, I pulled up a CoinDesk article and I got a little context on it. So it's rare for me to be less abreast of crypto news than you are, but in this case, I'm, I'm caught flat-footed. So I'm reading a Coindesk article here. It's written by Alex Thorne, and it says, on Monday, the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is the CFTC, sued Binance for running an alleged illegal exchange and a sham compliance program. The regulator, which is responsible for oversight of commodities and derivatives markets, including the derivatives tied to Bitcoin, sued Binance CEO uh, Changpeng Zhao and former top compliance uh, executive Samuel Lim, alleging willful evasion of the U.S. law. So not a ton of details here. I, I don't exactly know what all that means, but, you know, we, we can comment in sort of general terms about the state of uh, regulation. I mean, for, for one thing, it's just an almost cartoonishly labyrinthine system, right? It's it's very, very difficult to know when you're in compliance with these laws. And it, uh, it is really just this constant task, which is also constantly evolving. You've always got these new hurdles that are being thrown up and uh, new things you have to overcome. And I can't speak about the specifics of the regulations that Binance is allegedly evading. But I do know that in some cases, uh, you can find people on record saying that the laws are drafted specifically to give regulators a lot of leeway and a lot of ability to decide on a case-by-case -case basis how and whom they want to prosecute. Uh, Whereas they could try to make it as objective as possible so that you know up front whether or not you're you are in violation of the law. I don't know if that's the case here, but it wouldn't shock me if it were. And that gives them yet another set of tools that they can use to drive into the hearts of uh, companies that they don't like or, or yeah, that they otherwise what, want to rein in. 
What this really feels like, though, is it's a direct attack of the banking system against crypto. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as Silicon Valley Bank failed, I mean, we started seeing this, uh, the feeling of a meltdown across the country that Silicon Valley Bank seemed to be like Lehman Brothers was in 2008. And, and all of a sudden, Bitcoin started climbing really fast. And this seems like a direct response. The banking industry says, well, we got to we got to put a lid on this real quick. And so let's start filing lawsuits, doing whatever we can to slow slow crypto down because they're going to usurp our turf. Uh, that's that's what it feels like. Um, what What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's plausible. So I don't have a I don't have a solid thesis one way or another. It's not really something I've looked into, but there's a rich history of incumbent firms in various industries doing exactly that sort of thing, either lobbying regulators directly to pass uh, legislation, which makes it more difficult for new entrants to upset their hegemony, to upset their position of power, uh, and otherwise just act to kind of cordon off their market so that, yeah, I mean, they can keep raking in the profits year after year and not have to face uh, upstart competitors. Uh, we've, know, we've known for a while that there, there's been a lot of angst in the finance sector uh, over crypto and the possibilities that that it opens up for for everyone, and it would not surprise me at all to discover that something like that is happening. Uh, I, I think this question of contagion is very interesting. So I've heard pretty solid analyses both ways about whether or not this is indicative of a broader contagion that we have to contend with in 2023. So I, I know people who've said that Silicon Valley Bank is. It's very much a unique sort of financial institution. It's overexposed to small startups, which are famously volatile and prone to going under, and that there's no real reason to worry about the rest of the financial sector. But I also know people who really know their stuff and who've said that that's not true, that there, in fact, are signs of cracks forming all across the uh, financial sector globally, and that we're in for very rough times ahead. Circling back to the Balaji's question, I, it, it doesn't strike me as very plausible that we're going to see hyperinflation in the United States or a wholesale abandonment of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency or a fiat currency anytime soon, certainly not in 90 days. But if the latter sort of analyses, the, the group of people who believe that there is a possibility of widespread contagion are correct, he might end up uh, looking better on the other side of this uh, than he'd even hoped. So I, I, I guess we'll see. I, it's one of those things where I really like him and I really want Bitcoin to succeed, but I don't want this bet to succeed because in order for that to be true, 90 days from now, the world will have to be a much worse place, a much worse place. And, and I, I'm just like, I'm in the process of buying a house. I can't, I can't exit to Bitcoin. There's no possibility of that. So with, with, with the way my finances are sitting right now, I mean, if, if the dollar tanks or there's serious inflation or, or serious tremors, then I'm going down with it. I, there's, I, I'm just sort yeah. of caught at, at an inopportune time. Yeah. I keep thinking about it at, at home. I do have a $10 trillion note from Zimbabwe. <laughs> and so when it comes to hyperinflation, I have this piece of cash that's probably worth as much as a penny. Uh, and it's $10 trillion note. So, <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, there, you know, whole books have been written exactly about this. When money dies, about hyperinflation of Weimar Germany, or even historical studies going back to the hyperinflation of the Roman Empire uh, during the third century under the Emperor Diocletian. So we, we've got a lot of monetary history to draw from, and somehow it just it seems like we're never able to learn the right lessons. And before we start well, recording, oh, go ahead. Yeah, things are things are moving much quicker now. Um, 
our, our awareness, we have much more awareness of what's happening in the world. Like mm -hmm. the Roman Empire, it would take weeks for the information to get from point A to point B. Um, now we get it in five seconds. Uh, and even that's too long at sometimes, but, uh, but, but we, we have to react faster too. And so we have to make decisions so much quicker. So we don't, we don't have that fast awareness. We uh, imposes a fast reaction on us as well. And, um, I'm not sure we're mentally prepared for that. So unless, unless we put in automated systems for, mm, I don't know, a regulatory environment, that works outside of human control, uh, that may be the only way of doing it. I think there are a couple of ways you can respond to this. And I think that's a very good point. So in the world of today, obviously we're far more interconnected than they were in the Roman Empire. That's a, it's cliche to even point that out now, but it has a number of different important consequences. So for one thing, what counts as a bank run and how a bank run can get started is very different now that we're all banking online. So you know, once upon a time, and by once upon a time, I mean the 80s, right, or the 90s, uh, or even the early 2000s. If you if you wanted to run a bank, yeah, I mean you had to put on pants, you had to get in your car, you had to drive down to the the place, you had to withdraw your funds. Now, I mean, it can it can be handled on an app, right? I mean, somebody could see the Balaji's bet, or thousands of people could see the Balaji's bet, and that morning uh, precipitate a bank run just by withdrawing all their funds on, on their phones. So. The dynamics that these institutions are facing are different than they were in the past. And to your point, I think one thing you could try to do is automated systems. But then again, you you run the danger of having these automated systems shut everybody out of their accounts to prevent a bank run. And you don't want that. Like you want to be able to access your money under any conditions at all. And I think another possible fork in the road is by design it would be to design financial institutions that are just more resilient against these kinds of shocks. And so I've been listening to interviews with people like Caitlin Long who recently tried to file a charter for a bank. I, th I think it's called the Custodia Bank or the Custodia, Custodial Banks, something like that. There was going to be a 100% reserve bank. So there would be no fractional reserve. Like you put your money in this bank, it sits there until you want it. You'd have to pay a fee on it. So the, part of the reason that banks are able to offer you free checking is because they're making money by loaning out fractions of the income that you put in. So if you have $100 there, the reserve requirements are usually you know 2 3%. So they've got to keep $2 in. They can loan out the other 98 and they make money on that spread, right? So they pay you a little bit of interest. They make more money on the interest that comes in from the loan. And that's right. that's their profit. An alternative right. model is just to sit on all the cash and to charge people a fee. So I'd, I'd, I'd be charging essentially, I'd be charged essentially a, a warehousing fee for my money. But such an institution would remain effectively perpetually solvent, and it wouldn't matter if there's a run on basically every other financial institution in the world, theoretically. It's sitting there. You know it's sitting there. It's, it's right there in the charter, and you don't have to worry about it. So it would be a lot more resilient to these sorts of uh, widespread economic shocks than fractional reserve banking systems tend to be. So one thing you could try to do is put up really... Uh, intelligent automated systems that catch these things as they happen. But in my opinion, they'd be just as likely to cause them. I mean, you've got the flash crash, you've got all sorts of high frequency trading and the the stories coming out of those markets are are pretty well known. I, I won't belabor the point. But another thing you could do is just try to go back to basics and say, well, given that we live in this world that's fragile, given that bank runs can be memed into existence by you know, renegade venture capitalists who are making these insane bets, like what, what if instead we just kept all the money and we revisited the basic the basic contract that exists between a bank and depositors and rethought that and instead just kept the money so that there's effectively no possibility of a, of a run at all. Yeah. It's, it's important to note that in the banking world, that cryptocurrencies uh, 
since they started in 2009 that they've had a severe impact on on traditional banking. Um, they've they've impacted uh, the way digital payments are are made. They've impacted um, this idea of decentralized finance and and um, just uh, created new forms of competition. New forms of innovation are coming out of the woodwork, and uh, and it's this idea of financial inclusion too. So the the unbanked and underbanked people of the world, of which there is a ton of those people, um, may have an option to work with with crypto in the future that they don't have an option for working with banks today. Um, this is something that uh, Mohammed Yunus has uh, been spending his life. Uh, trying to per perfect the idea of um, doing microloans and can, trying to uh, create a society that doesn't have to uh, be so, uh, I don't know, resistant and so afraid of banks. Uh, because he, he, his story starts with a friend of his that was, um, that was in trouble. He was in trouble with a loan shark and um, he was worried about his life. He, they were going to kill him. Uh, because he had to come up with some money and the amount of money that he owed to the loan sharks ended up being $27. And because of $27, uh, he was in fear of his life and there, he had no options. He had no place to go to get this, this money. Um, so Muhammad Yunus loaned, loaned him the money and was able to get him out of hock. But then he, uh, he started investigating what all, what, what all was going on with uh, the kind of this subculture of humanity that is so desperate for money that they're willing to uh, put their life on the line for it. Um, that that became a really a set of revealing stories. But the crypto world has had um, see when you think about moving forward, is it's, is the banking world going to go away? Is crypto going to go away? I don't think either is going to happen. Um, I think they they need to. Uh, be able to work with each other. And I think they complement each other in the right way um, if if they're allowed to do so. Uh, and no, nobody really kind of has the right vision for how traditional banks can work with crypto banks and, and get along and actually um, uh, start to thrive and produce better results than ever before. Um, so I think that's, that's something that needs to be explored and and now is a good time to start doing that. <laughs> Out of the wreckage will pull opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about something you said earlier on uh, about people fearing banks and in particular the unbanked or the underbanked being sort of afraid of these financial institutions. And I don't think it could be a, uh, overstated how bad that is for those people and how bad it is that we have billions of individuals who are not able to access financial services. It's a bit of a simplification, but only a little bit to say that to a first approximation, you can measure the, the attainments of a civilization based on the kinds of credit it has, the kind of fin financial vehicles that it offers, the sorts of primitives that it offers, financial primitives that it offers people in its society. Because finance is a technology of, of truly breathtaking scope and power, and it makes a, a wide variety of things possible that simply aren't possible uh, otherwise. And it, it's easy to take for granted, but but insurance is an amazing thing, right? So I, I can spend, you know, 
$70 a month or something like that. And I'm insured against catastrophic loss. If I lose everything, if the entire house goes up, right, $200,000 or whatever it is, all of that is covered because I can, I, I can contract with an insurance company and protect myself from gargantuan downside risks. Uh, ditto for credit, right? So I, I'm able to structure deals that would simply be impossible otherwise. I, I'm able to consume things like a house now on credit, uh, where otherwise I might have to save for 30 years uh, to avail myself of a resource like that. That's not counting limited liability corporations. That's not counting what becomes possible with stock markets. That's not counting what becomes possible with all of these things, uh, with uh, you know mortgage-backed securities or credit default swaps or whatever. Like It allows you to do things that simply aren't possible otherwise. And I think that alongside energy, finance is one of the few turbines that really turns the motor of the world and really pushes everything forward. And when you distort such a basic layer in the technology stack of civilization, the social technology stack, you, you can't be surprised when all these other layers above it are uh, negatively impacted. And, and so we, we need to have on, on ramps for all of these people. They need to be able to access these things, to be able to safely store their money, to be able to make a small return, to be able to make investments, to access credit, to open businesses. Life can't really begin properly. Civilization can't really get off the ground properly unless those things are available. And by, by constructing a system in such a way that it's impossible for billions of people to access it, I mean, God only knows how many Amazons are out there that could be founded, or uh, it doesn't even have to be anything like that. I mean, just a successful barbershop, right? I mean, the, that that could be a life's work. Uh, that that could be something that's passed down family uh, to uh, one family member to another through the generations. And it's not possible if if it, you're running around the you're running through the streets af afraid that somebody's going to kill you over twenty seven dollars. You can't find find a bank account, can't access credit. Those are terrible things. So I'm really excited about what decentralized mm -hmm. finance will make possible. Yeah, in, in 2008, I was actually in Dubai, and they were they were having uh, the economy was collapsing over there, <clears throat> and it was it was a mess because of the way they structured a lot of the deals. Uh, some of these uh, high rise condo complexes there, uh, one person owned the land that it was built on, another person or another company owned the building itself. And then they sold individual units to the condo owners. So if any one of the three went bankrupt or they couldn't pay their bills uh, and Sharia law kicked in, then all kinds of things started um, uh, creating problems there. And that was that, that was a time when people were abandoning their cars at the airport and, uh, and leaving. Um, so there's lots of Mercedes, lots of BMWs, lots of Lamborghinis parked in or around the airport, thousands of them that uh, people just didn't want to get thrown into a debtor prison. And we we kind of take these things for granted in the United States, but the the systems that they have in other countries are very complicated mm -hmm. and they have a whole different uh, set of laws there and um, so you just can't take it for granted that things work the way they do here in the U.S. And and for that matter, they don't exactly work the same from one state to the next either. So um, I, uh, I spent some time in South Carolina, so I getting a, a feel for how they do things down here. And uh, uh, sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse, but they're, they're mostly just different. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. And that's a whole separate conversation we, we could get into 
around why the banking sector is the way it is, why it's it's so distorted and so straightjacketed. We we've done interviews with people like George Selgin, who's a monetary economist and a and a economic historian, who's looked a lot at the free banking period of Scotland and the era of wildcat banking in the United States and 19th century Canadian banking systems, and ultimately came away with uh, he came away with the view that. It, it is entirely possible to have privately issued currencies and for the financial system to be stable and workable uh, just through these market mechanisms. Like money is not the sort of thing that has to be under the purview of a sovereign power that backs it with with a gun. I mean, it can be backed by uh, trust in a financial institution or a reputation or any of a network effects or any of a variety of other things. And so I, I lean pretty strongly to thinking that uh, part of the reason the financial sector is so screwed up is that it's so heavily regulated. And for a century, a century and a half, it, it has been so entangled with the the monster that is the state, and it has distorted it and has made it much more of a liability than it otherwise needs to be. And, and one thing we haven't really touched upon is deeper questions around economics and things like price theory. You know, the structure of production is coordinated by accurate prices, and so when you've got the finance industry, which is not responsible for maintaining prices exactly, but which deals with large sums of money and is one of the important factors which determines whether or not a price is accurate or not. It's no surprise that there's so much production of things that aren't needed, or there's shortages or surpluses in various other ways. The economy is out of whack. It's sick because one of the most important sources of information, accurate prices, is not operative because of just this endless sea of red tape that's distorting them. Right, right. Um, see, see, it's interesting. I had this conversation with a friend of mine that um, that I I think you can get better deals on Walmart.com than you can on Amazon because you have an actual buyer involved with everything that's listed on Walmart.com. Um, I happen to be a, a fan of Hungry Jack potato flakes, and Hungry Jack potato flakes, for some reason, have been really hard to get for the last couple months here. And and so I would go online and there there are some outrageous uh, scamming prices online, including um, one one seller that was selling a box of potato flakes for nine hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he got a lot of orders, but uh... <laughs> right. Uh, but it, uh, the, but there's no, um, uh, I don't believe on Amazon that there's any uh, gouging controls in place. Now, I might be wrong, but I've, I've seen several instances where something that's real hot demand um, gets priced uh, in a way that's totally out of whack with what it should be. Um, and I don't know how to... Uh, protect consumers from that type of gouging. I'm not sure they need to be protected. I'm actually okay with price gouging. I think that it sends a signal of white hot demand in a particular place and incentivizes increased production of whatever is in that high of demand and can otherwise liberate resources to meet it, right? So right. Uh, a classic a classic example is, you know, water bottle prices during a, a hurricane or something like that and and everybody freaks out over it and says you inhuman monster, you should be selling these <laughs> bottles of water for the same price that they always were. But I mean, the thing is, if, if water is going for, you know, $30 a gallon or something like that, like what, what does that mean? So that sends a signal to entrepreneurs that are nearby uh, or not even entrepreneurs, just to people, right? So if, I, if I'm sitting on 
40 gallons of water for whatever reason I've been prepping for a while now. And I know that it's worth that much money. Well, it's, it's worth it to me now to liberate half that stock and go sell it at those prices. It's worth uh, people in neighboring States to load up trailers full of water and go there and sell it. And to meet that demand, right? Like I, I, I think that it's a sign of economic maturity to be able to make a coherent case for price gouging. I don't think it's, it's morally wrong. I think it's in part just the operation of the market. So you get price gouging when there's a sudden, really precipitous spike in demand for something. And you can get away with selling hand sanitizer for $10 a, a bottle or, or whatever it was, or toilet paper for $15 a roll. It, it's hard to get away with that long-term, right? So may, maybe I can do that for a day or a week, but eventually other people hear about it and they start opening their pantries and selling toilet paper and hand sanitizer and bottled water as well. And people from neighboring states will uh, load up trucks with it and come over and sell it. There may be a factory uh, two states away that you know, does a quick round of calculations and realizes that it'd be worth throwing together a couple of graveyard shifts uh, at, at double the, the wage rate, uh, or, or maybe even if they think the, the shortage is going to last a little while, maybe buying a factory they've been looking at, like maybe they've been looking at expanding, they go ahead and they rush that deal so they can get some bottled water and hand sanitizer out the line quickly enough to take advantage of that opportunity. The, the point is that initial spike in price, uh, causes the supply to go up as well. I mean, this is just, this is how price theory works. This is one of the basic insights of price theory. So I think that uh, pe people don't understand the important role that prices play in economic activity. And that's part of why they are against price gouging. I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I say gouge. And I mean, the, yeah. the guy is selling uh, uh, the potato flakes for a thousand dollars. He's never going to move that. You know, like yeah. that's absurd. It's the, the you, yeah, you can't but... get away with like truly egregious price gouging, not for very long. Yeah. On, on the other hand, if it was uh, the baby formula situation where the government had shut down a major factory and nothing was done about that for several months, creating massive shortages around the country, um, that seems like- Well, I also think that I think they have import restrictions too. And I'm not an expert on this, but I've heard that there are also some really severe import restrictions as well. So it's not just that the government shut this one really important factory down. It's that- Imports are hampered as well. So the government has kind of created that situation through their legislation. And I agree with you. If you're talking about a really important commodity like baby formula, and it's almost impossible to up the supply to meet that demand, then you do get into a different situation. It's, it's a lot stickier there because the shortage could go on for months and months and months. And the, the gouging could also go on for months and months and months. And I mean, kids could get sick as a result of it. I don't think it's a problem with price gouging per se. It's that the market is structured through regulations such that it's really hard for it to work. It's straitjacketed. So I, I can't, so, I mean, for example, like if they shut down this one factory, prices go through the roof and there's no import restrictions. Well, maybe I just cut, I, I know some German manufacturer, I cut a deal, I get a shipping container sent over with millions of units of baby formula. And I'm able to make a killing on that uh, because the market's able to work in the way that it's supposed to. But if if I can't do that, if there's uh, uh, import restrictions or punitive tariffs or something like that, well, well, then yes, it's a somewhat different situation because the government has, has changed the rules and has not allowed the market to clear in the way that it's supposed to. Yeah. And that, that also um, run into issues when it's the monopoly that's involved and Suddenly, if you're, you're the rate of uh, the cost for your power just suddenly doubles overnight or triples. Um, oh yeah, but most of those monopolies are set up by by the state. So 
Uh, yeah. the, the energy markets are set up to be monopolies. You have utility companies, you have to buy from that utility company. So that's that's also not a market outcome. It's not like we have a free market, uh, a deregulated energy market, and it tended towards natural monopolies. Maybe that would be the case, but uh, we don't know for sure because the government took the uh, remarkable step of just setting it up as a monopoly from the beginning. Uh, th- I mean, that, that's different in a few states. So Texas has got a couple of de- uh, deregulated, it has a deregulated energy market, which means that you can shop around for different energy providers and it, it works you know, reasonably well, I think. Uh, but, it, but it's still not what you would get if you deregulated the energy market across the United States and just allowed anybody to uh, sell energy as long right. as they, you know, they meet certain basic, um, certain basic standards. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. We're, we're in a very unique uh, time here, and this feels like such a massive transition period. Um, it's a transition where we've, we've gone through COVID, now we're trying to come out of it, and we have different values, different uh, moral standards. We have different ways of thinking about the world. We've all, we've all taken time off, and we've We've had time to sit back and reflect and think about where we are and is this where I wanted to be in my life at this in this point in my life, and um, and universally people are saying oh hell no, um, and that's why people have been dropping out of the job market, been quitting their jobs, and uh, and then suddenly we have the whole tech sector decides we we need to lay off people in mass. Uh, not just a few thousand. We need to lay off. We need to lay off a hundred thousand this month. Uh, maybe another hundred thousand next month, and that is um, that has never happened in in history before. As I don't think anyway. Um, not not that many people getting fired through email. That's for sure. Oh uh, yeah, that that's that's true. <laughs> uh. The most impersonal way ever of getting fired. <laughs> it's pretty obnoxious. Although I have been fired face to face a couple of times, and it's not a whole lot better. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think you're right. It's it's pretty unprecedented, and I've heard a thesis advanced just today. I think actually on a podcast. I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, I haven't had time to think it over, but that plausibly the AI boom that we seem to be living through currently that seems to be getting off the ground might introduce productivity gains, which are enough to outstrip inflation and some of the cataclysms that perpetually seem to be on the horizon that we might, we might innovate and invent our way out of this one as well. And I I can only hope that that's the case because I I don't want, I I don't want hyperinflation. I don't want mass unemployment. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, 
quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, um, but we we don't we don't really have a good feel for what levers are being pulled in the background here, <laughs> and it it seems it seems like things are going on that we're just not privy to, and. Um, so so much of what happens in the news seems like a sleight of hand thing that, oh, pay attention to this over here because we're going to do this over here yeah. and you'll know about it. Um, I wonder if that has anything to do with the historic low levels of trust in news media. I wonder if people have caught on to that and have decided that it's it's not worth believing in these institutions anymore. Well, yeah, don't believe government and don't believe news media. But the problem is, is they have such a huge impact on things. <laughs> mm, they do. They, they certainly do. I, I'm glad to see that some of that's changing, though. The rise of internet media and smaller media companies is, on the whole, very encouraging. It's possible to get a far broader range of opinions out into the public and into the marketplace of ideas. I, that's something I'm very bullish on. I, I don't know to what extent that will play out positively. So, I mean, you could see mergers. You could see a tendency towards a few large firms and an oligopoly, and then it wouldn't be much better than what we have now. But I mean, for the moment, you've got, you know, lots of podcasters, you've got shows like this one, we're not a new show, but uh, you get lots of different um, perspectives. And it's much, much harder to just erect these barriers that stop people from expressing their opinions. You do get a lot of insanity. That, that's the downside of it. I mean, anybody can say anything, and, and they do. <laughs> and a lot of it is just rancid garbage. But I think the upshot of that, and the thing that on the whole makes it more positive is the fact that you get some really, really good voices and, and it's almost impossible to silence them. It's very, very difficult to, uh, sil you can deplatform them in various other things. If there's collusion, you know, like they, they can take down an Alex Jones, but Alex Jones still has a show, you know, he's, he's still got a show and a podcast and I'm sure it's not as big as it was, but, uh, he's still out there doing his thing. Uh, I kind of wish he wouldn't, but he is. And, and so it, it does make me happy to know that even if you're as controversial as he is, you, you still have, a way to get your message out there. Yeah. You know, and, and that's not even counting Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman or, or some of these bigger shows where they're, they're really having these four or five hour deep conversations with some of the brightest minds in the world and just putting out a scale and quality of content that I think 10 years ago or 15 years ago would have been inconceivable. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. <clears throat> so we have, we have a very broad spectrum of uh, uh, attitudes and opinions around the world. Um, I think that's okay. Um, you know, I I keep asking this question of why why does Kim Jong Un want why does he want to run a bad country? Um, it's he's he has the the choice in the matter. I mean, he can run a much better country. He could aspire to be better than they are. He doesn't seem to do that. He wants to, <laughs> he wants to be the leader of the country, and he doesn't care how bad it is. Um, do you think do you think he thinks of it as bad? And if so, do you think he thinks of it as his fault? Like do, does he even yeah. does he even have those concepts? Well, I mean, he was uh, went through school in Switzerland. He knows what a good country looks like. Um, and there's no comparison. I mean, the style of houses, the the food that they eat, I mean, the food that he eats naturally is going to be uh, the what the royalty eats anywhere in the world, but um, but he's got to be able to look around and not see more than <clears throat> one percent of the cars on the road that they have in other countries. Um, the 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 number of houses that they have, the number of people working. I I don't know. 
it, I, it, I don't understand why that doesn't click in his mind that he could actually aspire to be better than what he is. Uh, right, that, that'd be a fascinating interview to, to talk to him and just find out what's going on in there. One of the tragic lessons of the 20th century is despotic totalitarian regimes like that really can amble along for a long time. So people were predicting the demise of the Soviet Union pretty early on, especially economists like uh, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, who understand economics and understand why central planning can't be made to work. And yet it lasted for 80 years, right? So it can go on for a very long time. And I think the psychology of the people in power in those places is really remarkable because you've got that dynamic you're talking about where uh, in the case of somebody like Kim Jong-un, you know, he lived in the West, saw how we live here, uh, could not possibly evade the fact that it's better in any conceivable way. Even if you buy the communist utopian vision, what they're doing in North Korea is not that. They're not achieving that. And so surely it would be better, be better to pass through a capitalist phase and have less mass starvation on your way to the communist utopia. And yet he just doesn't seem able to, or or willing rather, whichever the case may be, to make those connections and, and to make the necessary changes. And you do sometimes have these really fascinating mm -hmm. moments where some leader of a, of a high up country like this, like the Soviet Union, does confront a fact that cannot be escaped. And so there's there's a famous example. I it might have been Gorbachev, it might have been his predecessor. I don't recall, but one of them was in the United States on a diplomatic uh, mission or a diplomatic meeting, rather. And he decides he wants to go to a totally random grocery store, not not one that the Americans have set up for him to see, just just somewhere in Kansas. Like take me to that one. Just take me to to one that's that's. A regular American goes to that they have not had time to to mess with. And he walks in and he he simply cannot believe the variety of foods, how big the onions are, all the things that people have available uh, here. And he says on the plane back, like if they knew, if they knew what was going on, if they knew the options the American have, Amer Amer Americans have, if, if if they knew how good life was there, they'd revolt and kill us all. And he went back and starts putting reforms in place. So you do have kind of the opposite thing. So you've got like the anti Kim Jong-un where somebody has been in charge of one of these regimes for a long time. They've been in power for a long time. And yet they they finally see something that makes it click for them. And, and even they can't run away from it. It's just, yeah. it could not be clearer. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the difference between life and death. That's what you're looking at right now. And so I, I just, I, I don't know. I Maybe it somehow didn't connect. I, I wonder what the, yeah, what, what the equivalent moment would be. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers, able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. See, for Kim Jong-un, um, smartphones are making their way into North Korea. Um, there's, uh, something like 30%, 40% of the people already have smartphones there. These are the real cheap smartphones that come in from China. Um, and I had, I had the idea that communications is like water. It will find a way and that eventually the average person on the street in North Korea would, would learn how life is different in other parts of the world. And um, for some reason, that hasn't it hasn't worked that way. So uh, 
I, I I'm still kind of surprised that the um, the only way that they get any attention is by shooting off missiles over there. So <laughs> that's an interesting question. Do you happen to know how long the phones have been trickling in and the percentage of people that have them? Um, yeah, it's it's something like thirty to forty percent. It was well, it but was, do they do they have access to the internet too, though? Like the unrestricted uh, outside well, world internet? No, because half of the country is working on restricting the other half. Uh, yeah, but, um, yeah. So they they have lots of restrictions in place um, because that would be bad to know too much. <laughs> well, I think it's it speaks to the power of knowledge. the The fact that Aspiring dictators everywhere work really, really hard to control it, to control the kinds of thoughts right. people are able to have, the, the sort of flame that can kindle in their souls. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it so reliably if they didn't know how dangerous it was, right? So so yeah. that that is an existence proof of the importance of knowledge. You can see that playing out because everybody that wants to keep people down tries to control the information that they have access to. And it's also really hard to do, to your point. It, it's incredibly difficult to maintain that. Although, I guess, you know, North Korea has persisted for, what, 70 years now, something like that. So, again, I mean, it, it can go on for a long time. It can't go on forever, but it can go on for a long time. Generations, you know, of right. people who are stunted and starved. Right. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where the young people in, in South Korea don't wouldn't want a reunification because it's just going to be too much work. Um, and... Uh, it's it's interesting because South Korea has the lowest birth rate of any country in the world right now, um, and it's really really low. And so, as a as a technique for inspiring people to have more kids, um, the the government has offered that uh, young men don't need to go into the military if they have three kids. Uh, so that's that's the incentive plan at this point, which I find that very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish them the best of luck. I, I'm sort of aware of those statistics as well. I, yeah, you're right. Reunification would be an enormous amount of work. And I actually, I used to live in Korea, and I had a buddy there who he he was a, just a white guy from Arizona, but his Korean was quite good. He'd gone through one of the university programs. So his Korean was much better than mine. It was you know university level Korean, and uh, one of his hobbies it just community service kind of thing was actually teaching North Korean defectors how to speak South Korean Korean because after 70 years of isolation it's very different like they're the Korean they speak in the north it's comprehensible right it's not like a totally alien it's not like Russian and French or anything but it's very different right the slang words they use the grammars have diverged a lot and there's lots of words like cup and phone and stuff like that in South Korean uh, uh, the South Korean variant owing to their contact with the West which in the north they would not know anything about so it, it was just funny to me that this uh this american guy just who grew up speaking english went to korea learned korean and tutored north koreans on how to better integrate into in south korean society as they as they defected <laughs> yeah i gave a talk um, a few years ago at the korean patent office and um after after my talk uh, there's a guy that came up and he was he's an american i think he is from kansas and uh, and he says, yeah, I work at the patent office here in Korea. <laughs> he just introduced himself, just a, a real casual guy there, which seemed like a really odd place to see an American working. <laughs> yeah, I just ended up in the Korean patent office. Yeah, I'm sure that's that's quite a journey. Well, do you want to end on a on a hopeful note? Do you have anything uh, happy to talk about? On a hopeful note, um, 
we we always seem to fail forward. Um, and whatever catastrophes we're going through, they always set us up for for something better on the other side. And so we don't know what that's going to be just yet. But there were so many predictions leading up to 2020 that 2020 was going to be the year for all these things that were going to happen. And that was that was this the year that things were were carved into stone, all these predictions. And then COVID hit and just um, everybody threw all of the the prediction books out the window and said, OK, now we got to deal with this now. Um, we have, uh, we're setting ourselves up for, uh, I don't know, I think a much more resilient society than ever before. I think we're, um, we're, we're able to, to tackle things in new and different ways. I mean, I see people working with, uh, uh, the AI programs like chat GPT and I don't know, they can get two to three, five times as much done in a, in a working day as without it. Um, and so the amount of things that we'll be able to accomplish over a lifetime, I, I see just going up exponentially. Um, and that's that's what I find absolutely fascinating. I think I think we're uh, the the world is going to change faster than ever before. And while some jobs go away, I think we're going to be creating new jobs at a faster rate than ever before. In a recent statistic I heard said that over 50% of all people today are overemployed, that they have more than one job. And I know you can't talk to that at all, but... Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Don't know anything about that. <laughs> but, I, but, but people are working multiple jobs at any given time. And that is... That is new and different and refreshing in many ways. I agree. I think that the AI revolution that we're uh, we're seeing the early stages of is going to be truly remarkable as it plays out in terms of its economic impact and what it makes possible. And of course, there are, as there always are, innumerable reasons for concern. But on balance, I'm very excited about it. It's something I look forward to covering in the the months and years ahead. And we might actually... Uh, teaser have some future audio podcast developments in that direction as well. We, we we don't know for sure yet, so I won't talk about them. But uh, we, we might be trying to do more work in that direction. Uh, so I think I think that's a nice hopeful note to end on. We we've gone a little over time actually. So yeah, I hope you guys like this uh, random news roundupy kind of future audio podcast. Let us let us know if you do or don't, and uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.